Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to History Worth Repeating. Alpie Hartley wrote that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. My name is Barbara Brooks and I'm a professor of history at the University of Otago. And my name is Sonia Tiernan. I'm the Aaron McCleary Professor of Irish Studies also at the University of Otago. Together, over this series of podcasts, we want to canvas wide aspects of the past, from individual stories to national histories, from political events to emotional tides. We believe that some history is worth repeating, especially if those histories have been previously overlooked, ignored, or not deemed entry uh, uh, worthy of entry into the history books. So it's our great pleasure today to have Peter Burke with us, who's written a fantastic book entitled True to Ireland. Yes, True to Ireland, Era's Conscientious Objectors in New Zealand in World War Two. And Peter Burke is from Wellington and has worked for over 50 years as a journalist in television, radio, print and public relations. And we're delighted to have him with with him to sorry to have him with us today because he's also turned his hand very successfully, I may say, at writing this book lent history on conscientious objectors, um, Irish conscientious objectors in World War Two, and that's going to be the subject of our conversation today. So you're very welcome, Peter, and I'm going to pass you directly to Barbara. Thanks, Sonia. Great, yeah, good to be here too. Well, Peter, I was very struck by the opening uh, in your book and how you stumbled on a history that you didn't know about your own father. And this seems to me one of those kind of hidden histories uh, that we often come across when we dig into our family stories. So what struck me most is um, perhaps why your father left Ireland in the first place and when did he arrive in New Zealand? Well, I think Dad was born in a little town in the Belladocia, just out of my column in um, 1909. Um, his, um, I think the reason he came to New Zealand was he was looking for a better life, as a lot of Irishmen and women were at the time. Um, and ironically, his twin brother stayed in Ireland and became a, million, a multi-millionaire, whereas Dad came here and um, really did not make it that extent at all. He left Ireland, believe it or not, on the 23rd of December 1929, arrived in Wellington on the 5th of February um, 1930 on the ship called the Rangitani with a fellow um, gentleman from uh, my column, John Donoghue. And um, that was the maiden voyage of the Rangitani, so a big deal for that, big big welcome in Wellington. Um, these two young guys, 20 years of age, arriving in Wellington. And John Donoghue, I think, knew some an uncle up in Whanganui, that was just out of Wellington. We went up there and then um, worked on the roads for a while. The mother together. I just seen references of Dad kept there. Then came back to Wellington, where Dad um, settled into the Irish Society. He had met his mates there. Whereas John Donoghue went back to the States, interestingly enough, enlisted in the Navy during World War Two on the basis of being given uh, citizenship of the States. Unfortunately, he was killed in a in a in an attack on the submarine. And so that was what Dad's history was quite. So Dad met my mother, I think, in about nineteen. 19- 1940s at the Irish Club, 
um, married in 42, two sons, I'm the only one that survived. And Dad died when I was quite young. He died in 1962. So that's, that's mm. the, the sort of basic story of Dad. So less than 10 years after your father came, um, so his mate had gone off and, and um, served for the Americans, but uh, New Zealand, of course, also became embroiled in World War Two, and conscription was introduced, uh, ironically, by some Labour men who uh, had themselves been imprisoned in World War I. Uh, so why was this problematic for your father as an Irishman? Well, I think the issue was that they were all British subjects, so that's the first thing to remember. There was no such thing as a, an Irish citizen until, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but 1949. So they were therefore liable. They were of the age where you would be conscripted, um, so between 19 years of age and 45. Um, and Dad, interestingly enough, he came out, his name appeared on the first ballot, believe it or not, in October 1940, um, and that's when, that's when the news broke that, that they were going to be conscripted. But they knew about that a long time ago. In fact, New Zealand had prepared for the war as far back as 1936. There was actually a war book prepared by the, the Labour government in preparation for what happened. So um, so essentially that's what happened. And, and they were caught up in this whole conscription issue. Um, they were obviously opposed to it. And we'll talk about that a bit more when we talk about the, the way they, they did went about it, I think, which is quite interesting. Mm. Yeah, and and actually, when you're talking about the way they went about it, you you mention predominantly the organisation that was set up to oppose conscription of Irishmen in New Zealand, the Era National Association or the ENA. And this is actually one of the wonderful aspects of your research and the book, because this is an organisation, I don't know about you, Barbara, but I'd never heard of them no, before. So no. you've uncovered like previously overlooked histories such as this organisation. So can you tell us a bit about them? Yeah, I mean, what was interesting to me was, um, starting off quickly, I mean, I first discovered this quite by chance when I... Um, Five years after my late mother died at the age of 96, the, the only son decided he'd better clear out the house um, and looked at all these boxes of stuff and thought, I'll throw the whole lot out. And I thought, no, I'll have a look at them. And I discovered five pages of transcript of Dad at some sort of trial, which I didn't really know much mm. about. And it looked very powerful, very, you know, he's very strong, very strident in what he's saying. And um, I'd heard vaguely in the past that he wouldn't fight for Britain. Um, and that sort of led to going to the National Archives and finding out a bit more. And believe it or not, within five minutes of going there, um, the librarian of the National Archives picked up call of stories in the local paper at that time about the trial. So I had a, mm-hmm. within, a, within a few days, I had a, a picture of what was there. Well, I didn't know what was the extent of it. Some mm-hmm. names, and I, when, I, when I looked at the names in papers past, they were people I knew. I mean, I knew some of the names there. They were friends of Dad. Oh, my God. Some of them were, were I thought fathers of the guys I went to St. Pat's College with, and they were. So that was quite intriguing. Then I went to Colleen O'Donovan from the Irish um, Society, and the Irish Society had very few records available, but the one that she kept by some chance was the, the financial records, the, the final financial report of the ENA, which was rich because it had all the names of these men, how much they'd paid to join it. So I suddenly had 160 names of men yes. and women and a couple of Catholic priests there as well. So that's how it sort of came about. So we found... The BNA was essentially formed out of the Irish Society because the Irish Society, you couldn't involve yourself in politics or religion as part of it. That was the deal. So they had to form a separate outfit to fight this conscription issue, and they formed what was called the Euro National Association. And, and Paddy Feeney, who actually had fought um, uh, in the 1916 Rising in Galway, and then later in the, in, the, uh, in the War of Independence, and later he also fought for the IRA in the Civil War. He was the president. So that's how I got onto it. 
What was interesting for me was that when I looked at this stuff, I went to a lot of historians in New Zealand and overseas. They knew nothing of it. I went Mm. to David Grant, who wrote the book about contents of bits in New Zealand. He knew nothing about it. So this this was something that no one had ever uncovered before. Yet, as I wrote the book, I suddenly found that individual families knew about it, but didn't really have never put the dots together. And that's what I've done, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I like it is it is fascinating, but actually, it, it's great to get that insight as well as what what was happening with Irish societies at the time. It does stand to reason, actually, that you can't be involved in any kind of political activities in a sense because it it, it clouds what the society is doing, I suppose. So, with the ENA as well, they're like they're clearly you can see from your book highly organised. They know exactly. So when you say I'm not surprised, then when you when you think that some of these people who were involved in were already involved in the fight for Irish independence at home. They're very organised. Tell us about the way they set up this test case, the initial one, which is to appeal conscription on behalf of initially six men who were referred to as the Sons of Era, which includes your father. Um, what, what I think happened was, um, looking through papers past, there were pockets of Irish people coming before these Armed Forces Appeal Boards, which were interesting. They were comprised mainly of, dare I say, old men mm-hmm. who were pro-RSA, very, very, you know, um, damn these conscious, these rebellious Irishmen, we don't want them, let them fight or go to prison. Um, so the Era National Association, I think, decided that, and with the, with the connivance of the government, rather than have these string of cases, let's have one test case and let's sort the thing out once and for all. We'll go along with the answer. And as a result of that, um, the International Association picked six men. Um, Dad was one of them. Another one of them was Morris Elwood, who was um, a relation of Father Eamon Elwood from Dublin, who's been a great friend and helpful in the thing. Another one was a guy called Paddy Sullivan, who actually, surprisingly enough, lived not far from where I live now, in, up in, up in Horatanua. And he was part of it. And there was another guy called Don James Moriarty, one of his sons went to St. Pat's College with me, believe it or not. Two others I can't find. So mm. um, they appealed on the grounds of um, Ireland was neutral, um, that they were citizens of era, not British subjects, and also they talked about the, um, the what they'd seen as young men, young men growing up in Ireland of the terror of the black and tans. And Dad talked about it very extensively, uh, about his own family being own family owned, being raided by the black and tans. There was a series of things you can see in the book about it. It's quite big. And Dad was really, you know, strong about how he thought about it. Um, he swore um, the, the body of John Gagan and IRA man killed in, in Gorwich down the road and where he lived. He swore the, the bulk of with Father Michael Griffin, the Catholic priest, was murdered by the Black and Tans. He had very personal accounts of what happened, and they all did. And every mm-hmm. one of those men in this thing had personal accounts of that nature. Was, it, was there a, a great deal of public interest in the case at the time? I think there was a, the reason for the public interest was not so much because, yes, there was, because there was almost a, na- a name and shame campaign I yeah. delivered. Um, so anyone who was a conscience objector, regardless of the Irish, were always named in the papers. Mm. So it was clear, you know, if you, were, if you were unwilling to fight, you were a coward, you were a shirker. And they, so there's a lot of publicity given to people. It's, the papers are rich with... with um, with stories about people like that. And I, I saw names that I knew personally as well, other than the Irish people, which came about. So it was something that was part of the deal, you know, quite interesting in that sense. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a name and shame game. Um, and they were shamed, obviously. They were, they were even worse than, than conscientious objectors because they were Irish and they were Catholic, probably. So they were the lowest of the lowest class in New Zealand, probably. And, and did the... Um 
did the actual trial itself allow them to place their reasons clearly? I mean, was that reported, and uh, what was the outcome for them? Well, the, the, the case was reported, and that's, that's interesting because that's in the paper, you know, quite extensive coverage of what they said, um, and that actually gave me quite a lot of help in, in terms of writing the book, actually direct quotes, if you like, is what mm. that had. Um, so that was, there was a lot of coverage, and, you know, we're talking of several column inches, we're talking almost a half, you know, a half a, half a page column of, of stuff given to one of the trials, um, to their trial, and they did give their points across. They were challenged by the lawyer for the Crown, and they had a very strong altercation with him. Um, the guy said, I can't understand you. Um, because of your broken dad said, well, if I'd muttered something about you that wasn't nice, I'm sure you'd understand it. <laughs> so he, <laughs> he sounds like a feisty character. <laughs> he, was, he was a feisty dad. Dad was, dad was quite a gentleman, but, but not quite capable of saying it. And then the other thing he said in this case was, you know, under, they asked, would he, would he fight for New Zealand? He said, under no circumstances, but, you know, I will not fight for, for England under the, the, the face of a bayonet, the machine gun, or the revolver. I will happily die for Ireland, but I will not die for England. He made that very clear, and that was mm. it's pretty powerful stuff, and they mm. all said the same thing. So they were very strong in that line. I think that's quite interesting. Mm. So what was the outcome? The, the outcome was the appeal was rejected. They were told, um, sorry, guys, um, you are a British subject there, and I pulled a chapter in the book, Fight or Feck Off, which was basically saying you either fight for New Zealand or you go back to Ireland, or your alternative is to go to prison camp, basically, which is which they were not going to do. So the other thing that was really interesting was um, my researcher, Jordan O'Reilly, uncovered the list of 155 men and names of them mm. who were going to be deported back to Ireland. And I think that's, again, a very piece of rich um, data in the book. Because it says these are the people who are going to go back. The reason was, of course, that um, New Zealand had... It was a problem for New Zealand at the same time, too, because they'd... Crete had been a disaster. Another Winston Churchill little forays into the military and complete stuff up to put it crudely. Um, and New Zealand had lost a lot of men, so they wanted people to, to fight. They just needed to fill the gaps. Yeah. Mm. Um, the other thing I think is interesting in this is though that that that, that, um, that the men kept going. E and A were not prepared to accept that answer, and they kept on badgering phrase of the the um, New Zealand Prime Minister at the time and. The reason for that was they, they knew they had Fraser to some extent in their hands. He was very pro-Catholic. He was a great friend of Eileen Duggan, the poet, um, mm. Catholic poet, mm. um, famous for writing for the tablet. Um, she was a member, along with Fraser, of the Irish Self-Determination League back in the 20s. And so, he, he had served for, in prison himself, had he not? Yes, he had. But yeah. he had served mm. for sedition, not for, not for being a conscience. He'd served for, right. for speaking out against World War One. There's a mis- bit of a misconception yeah. that a lot of these men were were conscious they weren't. They were actually against the war, full stop. That was their reason mm. for it. Yeah, um, yeah. So the Fraser-Dev relationship is something I think that's very special uncovered in the book. No one knew that Fraser and Devil were, were close friends, and they met in '35. Yeah. And then in the middle of World War Two, Fraser's in England having dinner with Churchill. The next night he hops over to Ireland and spends five days with Devil I know. Now, I was, was, yeah, I was astounded when I saw that in your book, actually. And, and then you have images, and it's fantastic, because, again, you don't know about these connections. You're thinking, what, you know, that there is these kind of heads of state, effectively, that are, you know, from Ireland and New Zealand, like meeting each other during these times. It's fascinating. Um, and I think the exception, yeah. just, to, just to add to that, too, that when, that when Dev came to New Zealand in... Um, 48, when he was in opposition, Fraser made that a state visit, which was unusual to give a state visit right. to a leader of the opposition. That oh, was yeah. unusual. Yeah. But that, that, that's never been done before, to the best of my knowledge, and, and since. And then when Fraser went to Ireland in 48, um, 
De Valera, who's at that stage um, Chancellor of uh, um, National University of Ireland, gives him an honorary doctorate in laws. So, which is, it's really, there's that mm. special relationship there, which I think I've explored a lot. Yeah. Um, there's more to be explored on it, quite yeah. Yeah, no, you have. I mean, you've done that really well because it goes way beyond, you know, what happens with the with the ENA and the conscientious objectors. Do, I, I'm interested as well because, you, you know, you talked about how they're viewed at the time. And, of course, commemorations and I suppose it's very topical at the moment as well when we're thinking of statues and what's happening around around yeah. the world. But both world, both world wars, it's often, of course... It's people that are celebrated that have contributed to the war effort. We don't have statues to conscientious objectors, essentially, or people who are striving for peace during these world wars. We can see this even in New Zealand with the war memorials. Do you think that the activities of conscientious objectors have been overlooked in history because they refused to contribute? Or do you think that this is much more complex when we're talking about the Irish men in, in World War Two? I think the I think the, the conscience objectors has been overlooked and that they've been demonised right through until comparatively recently. And I think what I've found now is that it's a bit more fashionable to say that maybe your father was a conscience objector. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't, certainly wasn't when I was at school. Um, there was bigotry of a high degree. Um, and anyone, the first thing that people asked you was, what did your father do in the war? Right. Now, I didn't know, quite frankly, but I know one... One woman told me that she told her father, said, oh, the army put me into the, into the home guard. Well, actually, what they did was they actually manpowered him. But um, they, they found ways of getting around it. But certainly now I think it is much more fashionable to talk about it. But the trouble is there's been very few books written about it. Only David Grant's yeah. book, Out in the Cold, in World War Two, if anyone, and mine's the other one. And, 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 you know, David never covered, never knew about the Irish thing. So mm. um, there was a paucity of, of, of literature around of it and um, it's quite hard to get because you've got to really I spent a lot of time you know it was four years solid research to get the thing together and then yeah and it, it's obvious as well that this is why you didn't know so much about this situation growing up or even into early adulthood because it is kind of seen as an embarrassment or just to keep it quiet you know do you think that this is why it's not really spoken about too much I, I think it is but also I think it's part of the, the whole thing about the war generally you don't you never found too many servicemen who went to war right. wanting to talk about what they did. And I talked to friends whose fathers went to war and their view is that their father never really wanted to talk much about it anyway. I think there was almost that tone of silence over the whole war thing. And um, and I think it's something that, 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 you know, probably today people are more open, but in those days, weren't. And I think the Irish were just caught up in the same thing. So that's that's my sort of feeling about the whole and of course, it does make me think as well when you're talking about, you know, the possibility of them being deported back to Ireland. Your father would have arrived back to Ireland as a hero, actually, because, <laughs> you know, because, of course, Ireland was neutral, as you said. It, there was an emergency rather than, you know, the, the country being involved in the war. Do you think as well, because you've launched your book now at this stage and that I find that interesting as well. That you've launched it in Ireland and in New Zealand. Has it been received differently in, in, in those countries? Probably it has. I think in New Zealand um, it's been received very well because a lot of the names in, the, in those lists uh, have got relatives in New Zealand. And I've had over 100, 120, 130 emails from different people all around the country who've picked up on, on the book um, through the website which I've had um, and the other publicity. Um, and in Ireland it's been more focused around the areas where the men were, principally around Galway and Dublin. 
Um, it's been picked up by academics in Ireland as well and some of the libraries. But in New Zealand, I think it's had very good coverage. And um, mm. it's sold in New Zealand. We, we, we had to reprint the book at the first run, ran out in five months of printing. Fantastic. That um, is fantastic, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is a bit surprising. I was quite shocked at that. I never expected it. I, I was... We printed 650, which is not a big run, but nonetheless, for that sort of book it was. But it was out, it was sold out by October um, after launching in March. So we had to really print that quickly. And then we printed in Ireland, which was another challenge and not a story to be told today. Oh, you wrong, printed in Ireland as well? I, we printed in Ireland, oh, yes. Okay. That was the, we couldn't get... Um, the cost of printing in New Zealand and, and sending to Ireland was too high. Right. There was no publisher in Ireland. And by chance, this is a crazy thing, I put an email out to friends saying, do you know anyone in Ireland who'd publish for me? A woman ran, came back and said, I've got a printer friend in Ireland who'll probably do it for you. Give them a ring. I did. They said yes on the, on the basis of a phone call. And they said, oh, by the way, have you got a distributor? And I said, no. They said, we know one. Give so-and-so a ring. Within two phone calls, I had it. And when, when we launched at Trinity College Dublin, the excitement was to walk out of Trinity College and walk into Easton's right next to oh, Trinity lovely. College and to Hodges and Figures yeah. and see this book on the shelf. I said, oh, you know. We did, we did it. Can yeah. I ask, how do you think your father would feel? I think he'll feel very proud of it. And um, mm. I think the next, the next thing I want to do is to, is to have some public acknowledgement in New Zealand of the men. And I'm working with Peter Ryan on that now. Mm. They have some sort of sculpture or some sort of commemorative plaque or some sort of way that we can remember these men in a very public way, more than just a book, but something that can stand there, something maybe in the New Zealand, in the Irish Embassy to do that. So that, yeah. that's the plan. And I think that'll work. I've got something underway at the moment and we'll, we'll be revealed in a few months time I hope but yeah. it's something and, rather beautiful yeah and of course that's what we should say that the, the Irish Embassy in New Zealand has been so supportive of the of the research because it's it's wonderfully done um, it's it's an amazing story that you've uncovered was there anything else that you wanted to add as well yeah, Peter? I think the one, the one thing I want to say is that you know this has not been a solid effort um, I've um, I haven't done this on my own I've had some very great people Geraldine O'Reilly researcher uh, fellow Eamon Elwood in Ireland and Dublin, who is the, the Elwood family historian, provided some amazing documents for me. And my partner, Lynette Wolf, who, um, to this be fair, I'm a storyteller, not a, not a writer. Um, mm. You won't get me into academia in any, um, but she, she and, and, and Cuba Press Roger Whelan managed to, to craft my story into something that is readable. Um, it, it allows my voice to be heard. It's a, bit of, it's a bit of everything. I mean, the thing for me is it started off as being a family history book has morphed into being nice. an Irish New Zealand history book. And it's now morphed into being something of a military history book as well, which is quite mm. interesting for me. It's being accepted in those. And I've done a lot of publicly. Um, you know, I spent a lot of money on it. I have no regrets about that. It's been the one thing um, I think I wanted. If I, I made a decision at the start, I'm going to spend whatever it takes to do it. And I did. And I have no regrets about that. Thank God I did it last year. You know, and that's a good thing. Yeah, that's uh, uh, fantastic. And so interesting the way... Family history takes you to places you never imagined you might go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and to meet people you've never met. I mean, one of, the, one of the things was I had an email from a guy in Ireland who said, um, I looked at your book on the, on the web and I see that you've got a picture of my uncle in the book. Oh, he was from Donegal. That's lovely. And he went, but that, that person happened to be my godfather. And um, we got into correspondence. And, and then we spent three days with him in, in Donegal in the last trailer. So mm-hmm. that's just one of many examples of the stories. You know, it's, it's been like that. Um, I've got people I never knew in the world in New Zealand and they're great friends and we keep in touch by various means and it's, it's, it's been a, a privilege to write it and um, I feel a bit you know, taken aback by where it's gone 
Um, I've written millions of words in my life as a journalist, but yeah. these are the only words I'll ever count really in my life. Yeah. And Peter, we should say that, um, like, you're delighted with the job, but I'm absolutely delighted that you've written this and you've researched this history because this is what we're focused on and history worth repeating. You have absolutely um, uncovered something that we knew nothing about, and that is why this is a history worth repeating. Thank you, Peter Burke. FM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.